thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. This morning we're going to start looking at the final thing that the author Luke deals with here in the book of Acts. We've seen three different missionary journeys of Paul, and now we come to kind of the final thing that we're going to see, and it's Paul's journey to Rome. If you remember from last week that uh, Jesus came to Paul to encourage him, to comfort him, because Paul just got the wonderful opportunity to share the gospel with the Jews in Jerusalem, but unfortunately they rejected the gospel and Paul was down. And, and Jesus comes and brings Paul comfort. And something that he says to Paul, which is very important to remember, he says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Hey, Paul, I'm not done with you. I know you've done this here in Jerusalem. It's great, but you know what? It's not over. It's not done. You're also going to go to Rome and bear witness to me there. Now, Paul in that moment was probably thinking, with everything that's happening, how in the world am I going to get to Rome? Because if you remember, we were told 40 guys took this vow that they would not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So they are out to destroy him. They are out to kill him. And so Paul's probably thinking, how in the world am I ever going to get to Rome with guys like that waiting to take my life. And so when Paul finds out about this attempt on his life, you know, uh, he finds out from his nephew, his nephew tells him, he sends his nephew to the Roman commander to tell the Roman commander about the plot on Paul's life. And the Roman commander responds by having 470 Roman soldiers escort Paul to the governor whose name is Felix in order to try Paul's case. Now, normally, if you were going to escort a prisoner, you would just use a couple Roman soldiers. That was the normal uh, reality of that time. The fact that he uses 470 Roman soldiers, one shows just how God was protecting Paul, but also this is the, the method or that Paul's ultimately going to have in order to get to Rome. God's going to use soldiers like this to get him there. But first, we see him going to Felix the governor, and Felix lives in Caesarea, and as you can see on our map here, Caesarea is just a a little bit north uh, east of Israel there, uh, right on the coast, it's in that area, Uh, but that's where it's all going to start. The journey's going to start from here, and he's going to start heading to Rome, and so uh, this morning we're going to start this final thing that Luke here shares with us of this journey to Rome, but in Caesarea, Paul is going to stand trial here before the governor Felix, uh, and so we're going to see some very uh, applicable things that we're going to learn from this trial, from the people involved in it, from things that they do, and so let's see what we can learn this morning, starting where we left off in Acts chapter 23, verse 23, uh, says this, and the Roman commander called for two centurions, saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews about and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. 
And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their counsel. I found out he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were uh, commanded, took Paul and brought him by night uh, to Antipatris. The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what providence he was from. When he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's Praetorium. So the Roman commander who was over everything in Jerusalem, he sends this letter to Felix the governor. The letter kind of lays out the situation, what's been happening with Paul, you know, kind of the accusations that were there, giving him this background information and said, you know what, when I found out guys were trying to kill him, I sent him to you. And I'm also telling the Sanhedrin, the ones accusing Paul, to come to you so they can make their case before you about why Paul should be judged. And so Felix reads this letter, he accepts, he talks to Paul and he says, okay, I I will put you on trial once these guys, the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem, come here uh, and then we will deal with this. And so this is where we're at. And he puts basically Paul uh, in prison until that time. So now coming to Acts chapter 24, uh, let's see what happens. Verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So now five days have gone by. Paul and the army got there of 470 soldiers five days before this. And so five days transpire. And notice who comes. Ananias, who's the high priest. He brings some of the council with him. But we're also told he brings another man named Tertullus with him. And we're told something about Tertullus. He was an orator, meaning that he was a very highly skilled lawyer. And he was to present the case against Paul to Felix. And so the Jewish leadership brings this skilled lawyer and, and the fact that they come all this way and the fact that they bring this skilled lawyer reveals something about them. They definitely want to see Paul convicted. They want to see Paul dead. You know, we've noticed that before. And so they're going out of their way to try to do all they can to make sure Paul does not get out of this uh, without being convicted. And so Here's the accusation that this skilled lawyer brings to Felix. Notice what he says uh, in verses 2 through 4. And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, See that through you we enjoy great peace, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, Not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Before we look at what Tertullus actually gives as an accusation against Paul, I want to note a couple things about what history tells us about Felix, this governor here. Felix actually began his life as a slave, but he had some very good connections. Uh, his brother Paulus was a good friend of Emperor Claudius, and because of the influence that he had through his brother Paulus, he was actually the first person ever who went from slave to a governor of a Roman providence, but his slave mentality stayed with him. 
Tacticus, uh, a Roman historian, describes Felix as a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He also says, trading on the influences of his infamous brother Paulus, he indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any evil act with impunity. So Felix is a very brutal guy, a very evil guy, and I want you to note that when insurrections would happen in Jerusalem, he was one of the main people established there to deal with that. And he dealt with that in brutal ways. And so the Jews despised this man. They hated this man because he wiped out many Jews, not just who were doing the insurrection things. He would kill other innocent ones just to say, any of you do this? Guess what? This is what's going to happen to you. So they did not like this man at all. They hated this man. And the reason I want you to understand that is because look at how Tertullus starts his whole, you know, uh, speech here to Felix. He says this, seeing that through you, Felix, we enjoy great peace and prosperity as being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with all thankfulness. What Tortullius is saying here to Felix is this a complete lie. I mean, it's just total flattery, trying to build him up, hoping that he's going to get a favorable conviction against Paul. He doesn't mean this. The Jewish council doesn't mean this. They're totally just flattering this man. And the reality is these Jews don't have any evidence against Paul because he's innocent. And so they okay, well, well, maybe we can flatter Felix. Maybe we can get on Felix's good side and hopefully we can find a favorable verdict against Paul. You know, oftentimes we don't really look at flattery as a big deal. We kind of just see it sometimes. It's just kind of a, a small little lie. What's the, what's the problem? Maybe just a little exaggeration. But it's a sin. And it's a sin rooted in selfishness. You know, in the book of Jude, Jude describes these pretty wicked men. And I want you to notice one of the things he says about them. In Jude chapter 1, verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. You know, this is kind of the heart of flattery. You do it selfishly to gain advantage for yourself. It's rooted in selfishness. And you see this all the time with kids towards their parents, especially little girls towards their dads. You know, my sister was the master flatterer, and my brother and I recognized something. You know what? We can't get from dad what you can, and so we would come to her, and we would ask her to ask our dad for things on our behalf because we knew we would have a much better chance of getting it if she came. And so she would come and say things like, oh, daddy, you're the most handsome man in the world, or oh, daddy, you're the best daddy ever. Oh, daddy, I love you so much. I'm going to go out tonight. Can I have $40? You know, and she would, after buttering him and flattering him up, then it's like, now I want to give you what I really want. And then he'd often say, oh, 40, how about 60, dear? And then my brother and I would be like, hey, dad, we need 50 cents for a pack of gum. No! You know, I mean, it's just like, come on, what's going on? So, you know, we see this reality that there's a lot of flattery that happens. But, you know, those are innocent in the most parts uh, that it's used. But in the Bible, we see that flattery is oftentimes connected with things that aren't innocent in any way, shape, or form. As you read through the book of Proverbs, you see flattery connected with sexual immorality often. You know, there have been many men who have been seduced into sexual immorality through flattery. You know, I know men who have cheated on their wives with their secretaries, and their secretaries use flattery ultimately to get this man. They, they wanted to sleep with this merry man, and they used flattery to get what they wanted. 
And I know men who have uh, done that with girls. They've gotten girls to give away their virginity using flattery, and they would say all these wonderful, nice things, and the sad reality is once they had sex with this girl, they wouldn't even talk to her anymore. All that stuff that they said was just a complete lie. It was just flattery. It was just like, oh, let me tell you what you want to hear so I can get what I want to get. You know, the worst type of flattery is flattery directed to God. You know, and I think for most of us as believers, there's been times in our lives where we do this. We flatter God. You know, Psalm 78, 36 says, Nevertheless, they flattered God with their mouth, and they lie to him with their tongue. You know, there was definitely a time in my Christian life where I would pray using flattery, thinking, you know what, if I flatter God, if I say all these things about him and, and build him up, then, you know, then he'll give me what I want. You know, it was this kind of mindset, if I flatter him, then I can get through it. And, and I also found that there was a time in my Christian life where I flattered God in worship. Yeah, I didn't mean it. It was insincere. It was insincere what I was singing. It was insincere what I was saying. It was really just a, a flattery to God, and he does not want that. Flattery isn't something that we should be doing to other people. It's definitely not something we should be doing to God. It's, it's a lie, ultimately. You know, we can try to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Actually, it can be a very big deal, and it can lead to very serious sins. You know, a woman ran a red light and smashed into a man's new BMW. Both the cars were demolished, but amazingly, uh, these two people were not hurt. Uh, the accident was clearly the woman's fault since she ran the red light. But, you know, she came to the man as they both got out of their car, and she says, you know, it's a miracle that we're not hurt. And, man, you are the most handsome man that I've ever met, and it's just, you know, fate that we've, you know, been brought together like this. And look, another miracle. Our cars are totaled, but yet my bottle of wine is still intact. You know, I think it's fate that we should drink this together, and then after, you know, we can go and have a date and spend time together. And this man thinking, oh, wow, this is so great. And so she hands the bottle of wine to him, and he drinks half of it, and he hands it back to her to drink it, and she puts the cap back on, and she wipes it down and hands it back to him again and he says aren't you going to drink any she says no I'll just wait for the police (laughs) flattery be careful (laughs) flattery is lying to get something for yourself and it has no business in our lives as Christians Tertullus he, he starts off bringing flattery to Felix and notice the false charges now that he shares about Paul starting in verse 5 For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander, Lysias, came in and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. Now, if you remember back in 22, chapter 22, we have the real reason that, uh, or the real accusation that they brought against Paul, that he brought a Gentile into the temple, which, you know, and they ultimately wanted to kill him because of it. But notice here as they present their case to Felix, Felix is a Roman. And the Romans didn't really care about laws that were, you know, broken concerning the temple or concerning Jewish stuff. They just were concerned themselves about Roman law. Uh, And so notice that they don't really bring the true accusation that was against Paul. They bring a different accusation that they think Felix might be more concerned with. 
And you know what? This isn't the first time they do it. You remember back when Jesus was on trial, the exact same thing happened. When they finally got in front of, you know, Pilate, they don't really deal with the real accusation of, oh, Jesus is a blasphemer. They kind of try to bring Jesus as this insurrectionist, this guy who's going to bring all these problems. So they're bringing the charge that they think Felix is most likely going to be concerned about. And ultimately what they're saying as they say, we found this man as a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jewish uh, Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, they're saying, you know what, he's politically dangerous. Now remember, Felix's job is to make sure that there's no political problems in this region. And so they're trying to say, hey, he's someone who causes dissension among the Jews, and the Jews hated being ruled by Rome. And so Felix would have had to taken you know, that to heart, thinking, okay, is this man trying to bring some kind of dissension in the ranks and bring, bring, bring people against Rome? And so they're basically trying to paint Paul as this political threat and hoping that through that, Felix will convict him. Now, any of you who have watched movies or shows dealing with courtroom scenes, you've probably noticed that the prosecutor doesn't just share the accusation, but he also shares the evidence that is against the one being accused. But notice here, all there is is an accusation. They don't bring any evidence. Why? Because there isn't any. Paul is innocent, and so they're hoping that through flattery and through this accusation that hopefully Felix will be concerned about because they're trying to paint Paul as this, you know, person who's going to come against Rome, that he will give, you know, Paul uh, a conviction. And so let's see how Paul responds here to the charges that are presented against him. Notice what it says in verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because you may ascertain that it is now no more than twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor a tolment. They also, they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for the one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. First of all, notice that Paul doesn't start with flattery. And if anyone had reason to flatter, it'd be him because it's his life that's on the line. But he doesn't go down that road. Paul just gets straight to the heart of the problem. The problem with the charges that are against him. Notice what he says. You may ascertain that it's no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things which they now accuse me. Here's what Paul brings up. There's a big problem. There's no proof. All these accusations that they bring against me, there's no proof to back it up. They've had 12 days to bring witnesses that of this supposed crime that I committed. And he's like, okay, where are the witnesses? 
Why haven't they provided them? There's simply no proof for the accusations. And then he explains a little bit about his ministry and what he's done, and then he gets back to the problem uh, and his defense. After many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tolment. They ought to have been here before you if they object to, um, to you, uh, sorry, before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. Now understand something. Under Roman law, a witness was required to be presented before the person who's accused in order for that to actually be accepted in law. So he's saying, they're making accusations against me, but where are the witnesses? In Roman law, I'm supposed to be able to face my witnesses. They're supposed to stand here and say, you did this. They've had 12 days. Where are the guys? The people that they're claiming that saw me do these things, how come they didn't bring them? All right, well, let's just throw that aside. What about the people right here that did come? Why don't they stand up and say that I've done this? Because they know that it's not true. There's no evidence to back it up. Well, now let's see how Felix responds to the accusations against Paul, verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Baal and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now, interestingly, we're told that Felix had a more accurate knowledge of the way. If you remember back in the beginning of Acts, we found that today we call Christianity Christianity. Back when it first started, they didn't call it Christianity, they called it the way. And so this is referring to the fact that Felix actually had a pretty good understanding of Christianity. And with that understanding, he would have realized just because Paul's a Christian doesn't in any way, shape, or form make him some political threat. Actually, probably the opposite would be true if he really understood Christianity. And so he understood Christianity. But notice he says, you know what, we're going to wait for Lysias. Lysias is the Roman commander in Jerusalem. We're going to wait for him to come before we move forward with any type of decision on your case. Now, Felix avoids a decision under the pretense of waiting for more evidence that possibly Lysias would bring, but Felix clearly had enough evidence to make a decision in Paul's favor because there was none. There's no evidence against him. He could easily say, hey, you know what, Paul, we don't have enough to convict you. You're free to go. But he doesn't do that. Uh, He holds on to Paul, but notice what he does, and I think what he does kind of most likely reveals the fact that he thought Paul was innocent because he commands the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. He tells him, don't forbid any of his friends to come provide for him and visit him. That's not normal. If you get thrown into prison, that doesn't happen. And so the fact that he gives him all this liberty, he basically places him house under house arrest. You know what? You're going to be here. You can have friends here. You can have people bring anything you want. You just can't leave, you know, because this isn't done. Uh, and that reality kind of shows the fact that he didn't really think that Paul was guilty or he would have treated him much differently if he did. And so we see in verse 27 kind of the real heart of Felix and why he does this, because it's pretty clear Paul's innocent, so why doesn't he just let him go? Well, verse 27 says, Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. I think Felix knows Paul's innocent, but he also recognizes my role here is to keep 
peace, to make sure these Jews don't get upset, to make sure they don't do anything against Rome. And if they really want this guy dead, if they really want something to happen to him, well, now i got to play this fine line of trying to appease them and try to do what I feel is right. And so here we have Felix not willing to move forward. He ultimately procrastinates in this. We'll just put this off for another day, this decision another day. And and it's this area of procrastination in Felix's life that I want to spend the rest of our time this morning focusing on. And the reason I want to focus on this is because, one, I think procrastination is something that most of us struggle with, uh, and I think there's a lot that we can be challenged with and learn from. Uh, and so, you know, when I was in school, and it came to studying for a test, I was the king of procrastination. You might get a month, two months notice, two weeks notice, but I usually always waited till the night before to start preparing for the test, to start studying for the test, and it just, you know, procrastinating. You know, Scarlet is the queen of procrastination when it comes to bedtime. She tries to do everything she can to put it off just a little bit longer, and she even tries the flattery. Oh, Daddy, you're so sweet. I just want to give you one more hug. You know, you want to just stay out of bed one more minute. But, you know, she, she likes to procrastinate. You know, I read a, story, a study that said that these are some of the top things that people procrastinate over or wait until the last minute to do. Household cleaning and yard work. I'm sure a lot of us can testify of that. Physical exercise. Holiday gift shopping, making dentist appointments, and changing oil in your car. Now, I'm sure just in this list, probably most of us can say, yeah, we're guilty of one of those. Or, you know, there's obviously plenty of other things that we can say we've been guilty of procrastinating over. But, you know, you've discovered, I'm sure as I have, that when you procrastinate, oftentimes there are problems associated with procrastinating. I failed a lot of exams because I put off too late studying. And I got there and I wasn't prepared because I just tried to study the night before. I've gained a lot of weight because I procrastinate to exercise. I've paid a lot of money for gifts that I didn't have to pay that much money for because I waited till Christmas Eve to shop sometimes. And, you know, I procrastinated and it cost me. I've had to deal with some really bad tooth pain because I procrastinated going to the dentist. And I've definitely had my yard look like a wild jungle because I procrastinate mowing it, especially here in Houston when it grows so fast. So, you know, it's been said that procrastination is like a credit card. It's fun until you have to pay the bill. When we procrastinate in practical things, it brings problems into our life. We all probably have realized that, but that's not really what I want to talk about. I want to talk about something much more severe than that. It's when we procrastinate in spiritual things. There is a greater problem and a much more severe problem when we procrastinate spiritually. And the reason it's more problematic is because, you know what, if you procrastinate in cutting your yard or you procrastinate in studying for an exam or you procrastinate in any practical thing, it's nothing in comparison to the consequences that come from spiritual procrastination. Because you know what, if you procrastinate and you're cutting your grass, it just looks bad. You procrastinate in accepting the gospel and you die, you go to hell. I mean, the ramifications are are nowhere close to being comparable. It's been said that procrastination is a thief of time and spiritual procrastination is a thief of souls. Felix has procrastinated in a practical way by not wanting to make a decision in Paul's case, but now he's going to procrastinate in something spiritual. And I want us to really look at the ramifications that come from that. Verse 24 says this, 
And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So Felix postpones, he procrastinates, he pushes off the trial for a few days. And notice we're told during this time, he gets his wife, Drusilla, and they come to Paul in order to hear about faith in Christ. Now, we're not told the reason for why they want this. We do know that Drusilla was Jewish, and maybe she was kind of curious as to this Jew who turned Christian and and what this faith in Christ is all about. But hey, regardless of it, they come with this desire to know about this, and they talk to Paul about it. And before we see what Paul says, says, I think it's important to note, uh, we noticed a, a hysterical fact about Felix, but I want you to notice something about his wife as well. Uh, Drusilla came from a pretty screwed up family. Her dad was Herod Agrippa I, the man who had James, the leader of the church, killed. Her uncle, Herod Antipas, had John the Baptist killed. And her grandfather, or great-grandfather, was Herod the Great who, if you remember at the time of Jesus when he was a baby, had all the baby boys under two killed in order to try to kill Jesus. This is her family. It's pretty screwed up. It's pretty murderous. I mean, this is what she's come from. And we're told that when she was 15, she was very beautiful, and she was given to Mary. And at 16, Felix comes and seduces her away from her husband and makes her his third wife, and she goes for that. And so this is kind of the setting that we have. We got this guy, Felix, who takes this woman who was already married, makes her his third wife. Uh, and so they're obviously in sin. They obviously have these issues. And now they come to Paul, and they want to hear about faith in Christ. And I think that background is interesting as we see what Paul addresses when he speaks to them. Because now think about where they've come from, and notice what Paul says in verse 25. Now, as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self control and the judgment to come this is very interesting paul directs his message right at where felix and drusilla is and are they don't have self-control they showed that in felix taking a a married man's wife and she joining his little harem that he had there and you know they've demonstrated that they don't have self-control they demonstrate that they don't recognize there's a righteous standard of god and most importantly of all there is a judgment from God that's going to come to them because of their sin. That's what Paul focuses on. Now, I think it's interesting that we see this about Paul because I think it reveals something very important about him. If anything or anyone would Paul want to maybe, hey, I want to get on the good side of the man who could let me go, Paul could have been very general. You know, Jesus loves you. You know, he kind of just said stuff, never addressed their sin, never talked about their sin, never got on their bad side. Paul could have just done that, but that's not the Paul that we know. Paul wasn't one who would shy away from telling the truth to people who needed to hear it. And this is the reality. I'm sure that Felix didn't want to hear these things, but he needed to. And Paul addresses them. Hey, you guys got problems. You got self-control problems. You got sin problems, and it separated you from God, and his judgment is going to come upon you because of it. And you know what? Felix got it because we're told Felix was afraid. He recognized what Paul was saying. Paul laid it out for him, and he realized God's judgment is going to come upon my life. And so Felix is afraid after hearing Paul share. And so we know that Paul brought the judgment and shared about that reality of you got to get right with God or else. 
But notice here, he's at this place. He's afraid. He recognizes, I'm a sinner. God's judgment is coming upon me. We know from Paul that he surely shared about Christ as well. And so here's a man who's ready, who should be saying, hey, I need to get right. I need to accept Jesus. I need forgiveness of my sins. But yet, notice what he says. Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Instead of accepting the gospel, he procrastinates. Let's put it off another day. Go away for now. You know, we'll have a convenient time, hopefully sometime in the future. I'll call you back and then maybe we'll continue this conversation. Maybe we'll continue talking about Jesus. Maybe we'll continue hearing about the gospel. You know, the most severe procrastination is the spiritual procrastination of putting off accepting the gospel. You know, I've heard too many people share things like this. When I get older and when I settle down, then I'll get serious about God. Then I'll get right with God. Right now, you know, I'm young and right now I just want to enjoy life and right now I just want to do my own thing. But, you know, when I get older, maybe when I have kids and I want to be an example to them, you know, then I'll, I'll get right with God. Then I'll go to church. Then I'll deal with these things. Ultimately, I'll put it off. For another day. The reason spiritual procrastination is so severe is because these people might not have tomorrow. They might not have next week or next month or next year to get right with God. They might die today and there's no longer a chance to get right with God. The Bible is very clear. It's in this life only that we have a chance to be forgiven and accept Christ and have our sins forgiven from Him. It's in this life we have to make a choice because once we die, it's sealed, it's done. You know, when I graduated from high school, I went to Calvary Chapel School of Evangelism and every day for a month we went to the same beach and evangelized. And this beach had a lot of homeless people there and I met this homeless man named George and I engaged him every single time and we talked and we talked. And, you know, each day he became more open. He shared more of his life. He shared how he got there. And, you know, he had a very sad life. And But he, he came to a recognition that I need hope. I need peace. I need a, someone to love me. And we just kept sharing Jesus and what Jesus has done. And he got to a place where it just seemed like he was so close and he recognized he was a sinner and he recognized all the things that he wanted and desired were only in Jesus, but he kept putting it off. You know what? I hope you guys come tomorrow. We can talk again. And I remember sharing this verse with him, 2 Corinthians 6, 2. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And I explained to him, you know, what this verse is saying is get saved today. Don't put it off. Don't neglect it. Don't say, oh, well, we'll do it in the future. Well, he didn't accept the gospel, and we kept coming for the next two weeks, and I couldn't find him. You know, every day I was looking for him. Every day I was trying to find him. I found a homeless friend of his, and I said, you know where George is? He says, yeah, George went into the hospital, and he died of a heart attack. To my knowledge, George never accepted Christ. To my knowledge, he just kept putting it off and maybe thinking, that sounds great, and, and maybe one day I'll accept it, maybe one day I'll get right, but I truly hope that he did. I truly hope that what he heard, he accepted, but to my knowledge, he rejected it. And if that's true, then he's in hell, and there's no greater consequence to spiritual procrastination than that. Felix procrastinated in accepting the gospel, which is really one of the most foolish things any of us can do. Now, for those of us who accepted the gospel already, we think, well, we're not guilty of that. Well, good. <laughs> but you know what? What Paul does here is something that I think oftentimes we don't do. Because notice this. 
Felix procrastinated in accepting the gospel, but at least he heard the gospel because Paul didn't procrastinate in sharing it. Felix had an opportunity, and the only reason he had an opportunity to accept the gospel was because Paul shared it. And here's the idea where we think, well, hey, I accepted the gospel, so I'm not procrastinating there. Wonderful. But are you procrastinating in sharing the gospel with the Felixes of life, with the people who need to hear it? Because statistics say one of the things that Christians procrastinate the most in is sharing the gospel. Would that describe you? Family, friends, co-workers, neighbors, people that God has already brought into your life that you have an influence over, that you have a voice to be able to speak into their life, and God gives you opportunity to share the wonderful good news of the gospel, and we respond with saying, you know what, let's put it off for another day. Oh, I know this is a great opportunity, but hopefully it'll be a great opportunity next week, or or next time I'm at work, or next lunch hour, or, or whenever it may be, we oftentimes put it off. When it comes to sharing the gospel, many Christians have the we've got plenty of time mentality. Why do today what we can put off until tomorrow or ultimately until an indefinite amount of time? There's an important thing that we need to understand. If we had plenty of time, which we don't, the lost may have run out of time. We don't know how much longer our neighbors or coworkers or family or friends have. They can die. We don't know when their last day is. And there's another thing that we don't know. We don't know what our last day is. We can die. The Lord could come back for us. And so, you know, not only do we not know when their end is, we don't know when our end is. We don't know when the opportunities are going to stop, either because they're no longer here or we're no longer here. And so to kind of presume, oh, I got plenty of time to reach this person or presume I can do this next week or next month instead of right now when the opportunity has presented itself, is something that we just don't know and is foolish. I think one of the reasons many Christians do this is because there's no sense of urgency because they don't recognize the severity. I mean, we don't like to talk about it because, you know, it's not pleasant to think about hell, but hell should be the thing that drives us to recognize the severity of what's happening. The fact that people who reject Jesus Christ in this life are going to spend eternity in hell should be something that motivates us to share with them now because we realize there's only one message, the gospel message, that can save a life. There's only one message that can bring someone from eternal damnation in hell to eternal life in heaven, and that is the truth of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for our sins. And when we neglect to share that, I think we neglect to recognize the severity of what happens when people don't believe it in this life. You know, when I was in high school, it was to the end of my high school time. I just had, you know, started to get right with God. And there was a guy in our school that no one liked. He was a loner. He was a complete jerk. His name was Mike. And uh, there was one day that I had to stay at school for a long time because my dad couldn't pick me up. Uh, And so I was there like three hours longer than I normally was. And it ultimately ended to just me and him. We're the only ones there in the parking lot. Uh, And he comes up and we start talking. We never really talked much ever besides hi before this. And he just starts opening up. He starts sharing a little bit about his life. You know, and this guy, I can see why he was a jerk. I mean, his dad beat him. He had all sorts of horrible things that happened. Uh, and he came to a point where he just said, you know what? I don't even think there's any reason to live. And I remember at that point thinking, man, this is the perfect opportunity to share the gospel. And to share like, yes, there is reason. Jesus Christ is the reason. And I didn't share anything with him. 
And he just shared, and you know, we kind of just went away. And after that time, we kind of passed each other's in the uh, each other in the hall. I would say hi, but we never really had much of a conversation. We didn't hang out in the same crowd. Two months go by, and our principal comes in our class to tell all of us that Mike had hung himself. And I remember going home that night thinking, "Man, I had that opportunity. I had that opportunity to share the gospel with him, and I passed on it. And I might have been the only one left from that time to the end of his life that actually." believed it and was willing to share it and didn't. And, you know, to my knowledge, Mike never accepted Christ. And that's something that, you know, you think about and you recognize how severe procrastinating sharing the gospel can be. If there's someone in your life, a family member, a friend, a coworker, someone you know, they're not saved. Don't put it off. Go and share with them. Let them know the good news of Jesus. You don't know if you're going to get another chance to do that. But you know what? Spiritual procrastination is not just centered around the gospel. We put off a lot of spiritual things that are important. Probably the one that we're most commonly putting off is we sin and we don't want to get right. We don't want to repent. We don't want to ask for forgiveness. We don't want to change so quickly. We know we're supposed to. We know we do it. We know that it's best for us to just repent right away, to get right right away. We have the wonderful promise. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But yet we enjoy it and we continue in it and we dwell in it longer than we should. And it's one of those areas where we procrastinate getting right with God. We procrastinate getting right with people that we sin against. We procrastinate asking for forgiveness and we just kind of continue in it. And what we got to realize is that procrastination only has negative consequences. There's nothing positive about waiting to ask for forgiveness, about waiting to be repentant, about waiting to humble yourself and get right with God and other people. Nothing good comes from that. For those of you who are married, for those of you who have you know, good, tight relationships with people, you realize that. Nothing good comes from sinning against someone and then just putting off dealing with forgiving them or asking for forgiveness or seeking repentance, it just gets worse. And the enemy gets in there and the problems grow and they get more and more difficult. And so, but this is an area where we struggle and we think, you know what, I'm going to do it tomorrow or I'll do it next week or I'll do it next month. And, and our relationship with God is hindered. Our relationship with others are hindered. And it's just one of those areas where we struggle with procrastinating when we need to get right quickly. Don't procrastinate in dealing with sin in your life. But you know what? We also do it with good things, spiritual things. God says, hey, spend time with me. Spend time in my word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time serving me. Oh, you know what? That sounds great. Maybe I'll spend time with you tomorrow. Oh, reading the Bible sounds like I'd be wonderful. Prayer sounds really great. Investing in that person sounds wonderful. Why don't we do it next week? Why don't we do it next month? Why don't we do it next year? You know, we have this mentality of, oh, yeah, that's good, but not for today. And then the next day comes, oh, how about today? Oh, yeah, I would love to spend some time in your word today, God, but you know what? I'm really busy. Maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow comes. Well, maybe the next day. The next day comes. And we just keep pushing it off. And it has horrible consequences to our life. We're in desperate need of time with God. We're in desperate need of being used by God and serving others. And I know I am guilty of this in my life. I'm sure many of you are as well of just procrastinating and doing what is right and procrastinating and dealing with the things that are wrong. You know, I was just at a retreat this weekend and the Lord was just showing me areas of sin in my life that you're not dealing with like you should. Get it dealt with. And it's a good reminder and a good wake-up call of, hey, we got to continually be in that place of, I'm not going to procrastinate and put off 
dealing with the things that I need to deal with in order to grow in my relationship with the Lord. You know, I read a story about Satan and his demons that I think helps make the point here that I'm sharing. Satan called together his evil spirits and asked, how will we deal with continuing to lose souls to the other side? One demon rose and said, I'll go to the earth and tell men that the Bible is all a fable, that it's not divinely inspired by God. No, that will not do, Satan said. Another demon said, let me go. I'll tell the men that there is no God, no Savior, no heaven, no hell. No, that won't do, Satan said. Another demon arose and suggested, I will journey to the world of men and tell them that there is a God, that there is a Savior, that there is a heaven, and yes, the hell too, but I will tell them there's no hurry, tomorrow will do. And Satan sent him. The point of the story is Satan doesn't have to convince people to reject the truth. All he has to do is convince them to put it off one more day, one more day, one more day till they finally die. And then they have no more opportunity to accept the truth. And so it's not just that he comes at us trying to cause us to reject the truth, which is what he does, but he also tries to keep us from accepting it and just putting it off and procrastinating over it. And that's exactly what we see with so many people today. So my challenge to myself, my challenge to all of us here this morning is let's be very cautious about spiritual procrastination. The consequences are too severe for us personally and even more so for those who are lost and don't know the truth. And I want to close this message just putting this into practice. I just want to take a few moments to be quiet before the Lord in prayer And you know what? If there's sin in your life right now and you've just been pushing it off, you didn't want to repent of it, you haven't wanted to deal with it, you haven't asked the Lord for forgiveness from it, I'm going to challenge you, don't leave today without coming to the Lord and asking for his forgiveness. Understand the wonderful truth of 1 John 1, 9. He will be faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you of all the unrighteousness that sin has brought. So take that wonderful promise and put it into practice. Repent before him. If you've wanted to be sharing the gospel with someone that is in your life right now and you've been putting it off, pray that God would give you another opportunity very soon and that he would give you the boldness to proclaim the good news, that you wouldn't procrastinate anymore. So let's just take some time. I just want it to be quiet. This is just a time between you and God. If there's things that you want to confess, things that you want to get right with, things that you want to ask God to help you with, then I just encourage you to do that.